0: Please listen to the reading of God's inerrant word. This is Luke fifteen eleven through 32, printed on the insert in your bulletin. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come home or your brother has come and your father has killed and fattened the calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and treated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I've never disobeyed your command. But the word of God stands forever. Father, we not only sing your
1: praise this morning, but we with these gifts, tithes and offerings, we bring forth from what you have first given to us um, in response to your grace and mercy poured out to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we come asking that you would use these gifts and these tithes and these offerings in order that your kingdom would be advanced in this world, in order that the kingdom of darkness would be pushed back, and in order that the wonderful good news of the gospel in word and deed would go out to all the earth. And, Father, as we prepare ourselves now to sit underneath your word, we pray that that same gospel that we desire to go out into all the nations, we pray that it would be proclaimed to us this day and that you would meet us, that you would meet us corporately, but that you would also meet us each individually where we are, that you would meet us in our triumphs, that you would meet us in our exhaustion and in our defeat, that you would meet us in our apathy, in our comfort that you would meet us in the joys of our lives as well as the anger of our lives and the bitterness. We pray that you would meet us in our fears and our anxiety. That you would meet us in our doubts and in our self-reliance. That you would come and meet with those of us who seem to be very, very good and those who seem to be very, very bad. We pray that you would meet with us. And that you would show to us today the wonderful good news of the gospel. That as we sit underneath your word, we would indeed be reminded again that we are all far more broken, fallen and sinful than we could have ever imagined. But because of the person and work of Jesus... It can be true that though we are far more broken than we could imagine, we are also at the same time far more loved, far more secure, far more accepted than we could have ever dreamed possible. So we ask that you would do this because of the person and work of Jesus, in whose name we do pray. Amen. Please be seated. This morning, we're back in our. Oh, the children are dismissed to Children's Church, uh, ages three to six. Um, make your way to the back. Um, this morning, we're back in our series uh, where we're going through the Gospel of Luke, but we're not looking at every part of Luke's Gospel. We're really just focusing on the parables. That Jesus told, these stories that he told. And, you know, a title for the parable that we read uh, earlier out of Luke chapter 15 that caught on a long time ago in like the 11th century uh, was the parable of the prodigal son. Um, but really, I want to suggest to you this morning that it's a parable as the title in your bulletin suggests. Uh, instead of just a parable of the prodigal son, it's better. The parable of a man with two sons. Um, verse 11, Jesus said when he started this parable, I, um, he, he said he said there was a man who had two sons. Um, and that being said, I want you to see that Jesus was saying in this story. That the man in this parable. Both of this man's sons were far from home. And in seeing this, I think we'll be able to understand how we can get home too. okay? And when I say home, I'm not thinking of you know, four walls and a roof. Um, I'm not thinking of a, a shelter uh, from the elements. Not thinking of a place where you store your stuff. I'm talking about home as an idea. Um, maybe even better than that, I'm talking about home as the ideal, right? Um, the ideal home that we're all in some way... It, we're searching for it and we're longing for it. Uh, it's the home you, you and I, we wish we had. Um, it, it's the home you wish you knew that you're, you're really in all your life, you're trying to get to that home. Um, that place uh, that even our very best homes in this life, they're just hinting at it. Um, you just get flashes of the ideal in even our best homes. Um, because we're talking about a place of real and total safety, right? Uh, Real, unconditional love, right? Acceptance and deep joy, a place of warmth, a place of refuge, a place to retreat, a place where you get recharged and replenished, a place where you can totally and really let your guard down. And in a place like that, you know that life buds and flourishes. In a place like that, um, the home we at times, you know, we find it so hard to describe even at times, but deep down we're all craving it. Jesus tells a story here, not of one son, but of two sons who were far from home. And here's how I want to put it to you. Um, and if there's anything worth writing down, maybe this is it, because I thought a lot about this sentence. Um, this is the story of one son. Who left the father for a land far away, and of the other son who left the father without ever leaving the farm. One son who left the father for a faraway land, and one son who left the father without ever leaving the farm. Jesus is saying, Look, they were both far from home. Now, here's what I want to do with you up front. I want to give you three little cultural insights um, that hopefully will help this um, this parable come alive as as we walk our way through it and talk about it um, and really help us to answer this question. What do we have to do to get home? So here are those three little insights. First, verse 12, it looks bad enough on its own, right? This younger son, he wants his inheritance now. I mean, that's that's bad on its own. That's greedy, you know, that's rude, all those kind of things. But something gets lost in the English translation that really helps you understand what that younger son is asking for. Right? When it says that the father divided up his property, right? the Greek word for property is bios, right? Where we get our word for life, biology, right? See... Here's the deep insult. It's not just greedy and it's not just rude. This son's request is his saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. Right? Give me my inheritance now. What's happening here is serious in this passage, in this parable. Second cultural thing. When the father ran to his returning son in verse 20, what you need, it doesn't come across, you know, in our culture, but... This was an act of deep and profound humiliation on the father's part to run to his son. In this culture, men of status, men of position, they never ran. It was beneath them to hike up their robes and bare their legs and run. They never did it. This father humiliates himself in running out to greet his son. Final cultural thing here. No one ate meat in this culture on a regular basis, right? This was not a regular meal in this culture to kill the fattened calf and celebrate. This was a huge, lavish, expensive deal, an expensive party to throw. This wasn't let's just have a few of your best buds over and celebrate to eat a fattened calf. Well, over 100 people would have come to this party in the, out of this village, and they would have come together to feast. This is most likely the biggest feast that this father has ever prepared. Now, as we talk through this story, hopefully those little cultural insights will will give some texture to this story that Jesus told. And hopefully those insights will also help us to answer this question. What do we have to do to get home? Three things. We have to expose the root We have to empty our pockets and we have to enter the feast. Expose the root, empty your pockets and enter the feast. First, expose the root. Now, here's kind of what I'm talking about in this first point. Some of you will remember uh, the TV sitcom Home Improvement, right? Tim, the tool man, Taylor, and his neighbor, Wilson, okay? And if you remember it, in every episode, without fail, um, Tim finds himself in trouble, and he finds himself in the backyard look at, having a conversation over the fence with his neighbor, Wilson. You never see his, Wilson's face, right? But Wilson is constantly giving Tim, the tool man, Taylor, advice on how to navigate life. And there's this one episode where Tim, he's having this difficult time figuring out how to discipline his sons. And Wilson says that Tim's description of the problem reminds him of Verica Vulgaris. And Verica Vulgaris is the scientific name for warts, right? And so Tim is, as usual, very confused about what Wilson's trying to teach him in this moment, right? And so this is what wise old Wilson, you can only see his eyes, what he says. He says, what I'm trying to say is most people think the best way to get rid of a wart is to cut it off. But in actuality, that isn't the best solution. See, the wart will reappear because the virus is still below the surface. And then he says, The only way to get rid of a wart is to go beneath the surface of the oily skin and dig out the root. Disgusting, right? Um, Just to think of it. But... The genius of Jesus story here is that he is exposing the root of our brokenness, the root of our spreading death and decay. Right. The root of our warts, because this is what he's saying in this story. Both sons in this story are different. They're different from each other. But he's also saying this. Both sons in this story are the same. They look different on the surface, right? One is in a pigsty with a hangover and an STD. And the, other is, and the other is dutifully obeying and doing his chores. But Jesus is saying beneath the difference, beneath the surface of the oily skin, the root is the same. You see, the punchline to this story comes at the very end. When the obedient, dutiful son, he is seething in anger. And he is refusing to go into the party. But you have to back up a second because the punchline only lands when you hear, hear it set up properly, right? So you think about this younger son. His sins are so obvious, aren't they, right? Uh, Dad, I wish you were dead. I don't care about you. My greatest wish is that you would just die so that I can get your stuff. Right. I want to be in control. I want to call my own shots. I want to be the master of my life. And then you get this downward spiral that Jesus describes in this story. Right. Wild parties, prostitutes, reckless living until a famine hits at the worst possible time. When's the worst possible time for a famine to hit? When all your money's gone. Right. And he winds up with his head in a pig trough. And for a Jewish boy for whom pigs were unclean. This is the bottom of the barrel. This is as low as you can get. It doesn't get any lower than this. And of course, the Pharisees and the scribes who are listening in to Jesus telling this story, they're going, amen, hallelujah, preach it, preacher, you know, all that kind of. That's what sin is. But Jesus is saying. Those might be sins. But that's not what sin is. See. Because then comes the punchline, right? At the end of the story where Jesus shows us that the brothers look different, but they're really the same. See, the dutiful son says in verse 29, look at it. He says, I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Okay. This is what the elder son is saying. Look, dad, I don't care about you. All I want is your stuff. Does that sound familiar? I don't want you. I want your stuff. I've obeyed all this time so that I could be in control, so that I could call the shots, so that I could be the master of my own life. There are two ways that we try to play God in control and call the shots in our lives, Jesus is saying. One is through open rebellion and the other is through dutiful obedience. Sure, obedience is more covert. It looks different at the surface. surface, But the root is the same. Beneath the sins and beneath the obedience of your life, you have to expose the essence or the root of sin. I'm going to read you a portion of a quote from the theologian and scholar John Stott, and then I'm going to complete it in a few moments, okay? But here's what Stott writes. He writes, the concept of substitution." The concept of substitution may be said then to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation for the essence, or we could say the root of sin is man substituting himself for God. Have you ever wondered, why do I seem to be making so little progress in my Christian life? You know, I keep trying to stop the greed and the lust and the bitterness and the gossip and the self-centeredness. But it keeps coming back with a vengeance, right? Or, Or maybe you've wondered, why, even though I don't say it out loud, why, why, though I keep trying to do the right things in my life, do I feel so cold? You know, why, even though I'm doing the right things, do I feel angry with God for the way things are going in my life? Why, though I'm doing the right things, do I feel so judgmental and harsh with others? Listen to wise old Wilson peering over the fence, right? The wart will keep reappearing because the virus is still below the surface. You have to go beneath the surface of the oily skin and dig out the root. Better than even Wilson, right? Listen to Jesus. You you need to expose the essence of sin beneath your sins and your obedience till you do that you can never come home right we have to move on but let me just say that to expose the root of sin in your life you have got to stop asking what and start asking why why am i running for a faraway land why am i obeying why is at the heart of this that gets to the root okay second, if you can expose if you can expose the driving desire beneath both your sins and your obedience to be in control and to play God in your life, right if you can see that the second thing you have to do in order to come home is to empty your pockets now see i 've got this image in my mind of Charlie Chaplin in those old silent movies, right? Um, And he's playing his famous character, the Tramp, right? And that vivid imagery of Charlie Chaplin um, portraying that character, and he's got his pockets pulled out, right? He's got his pockets pulled out and his hands out like this to show that he has nothing, that he's totally broke. He has nothing of value. And I'm saying to you, To come home to the Father. To come home to the home you have longed for your entire life. You've got to empty your pockets. This younger son, he came to his senses in verse 17 when he was longing to be fed, even with the pods that the pigs were eating, right? And Jesus has the younger son talk to himself in this story. It's a soliloquy, right? Um, so, So that we can hear His thoughts so that we can get in in, in, insider information into his plans and his intentions. Right. Verse 17. This is what, what he's thinking. How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So listen, it's a confession, right? I have sinned. I'm not worthy to be called your son. But it was also a plan. A plan to get a job, right? Treat me as one of your hired servants. And I'm going to spare you the long academic discussion of the different kinds of servants in this culture. But his intention was this. Father, give me a job. And if you do that, I'll start paying you back. Everything that I took from you. Here's the interesting thing, though, in this story. In the next verses, when the father ran out to him. Right to greet his returning son. When the the son was embraced by his father and he was kissed by his father. When that happened. He dropped his plan to pay his father back and just confessed. You see that? See verse 21? And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. No mention of his plan to be a hired servant or pay his father back. And here's what I think Jesus is saying here. If in front of the father, this son had said. Get me a job and I'll pay you back. Nothing. Would have changed. Right? Right. He, he never would have come home. It would have just been another attempt at regaining control, at playing God, at being his own savior. No, the one thing he had to do was come to the father with nothing, to come with empty hands and empty pockets. Now, switch gears and think with me about the elder son, right? Every reader of this story, every scholar that's ever looked at this story, understands that Jesus leaves his story Unfinished and unresolved. We, you're supposed to read this story and you're supposed to be wondering, right? What will the older son do? Will he go into the party or will he stay outside? I mean, it's a hanging question. Will he or won't he? And here's why the older son is saying to his father. Look at my pockets. They are full of obedience, They are full of duty. They are full of faithfulness. They are full of conformity. The older son, he's late for the party. He has to ask what's going on. Why was he late for the party? Verse 25, because he was out in the field being the good son. He was out in the field doing his job, doing his duty, obeying and doing the right things. His pockets are full and Jesus leaves the story unfinished. And unresolved, will he or won't he go into the party? Because Jesus is saying the only way he can come into the party is if he empties his pockets of all his goodness, of all his obedience, of all his duty, of all his conformity, of all his righteousness. The only way to come in is with nothing in your hands and nothing in your pockets. Charlie Chaplin theology, right, and empty pockets are what makes Christianity different from every other religion the world has ever seen. From every other approach to God. Right. Some of you wrestle with, why should I believe Christianity? You know, I know religion. This is just another religion among many religions, and they're all really the same. And I'm telling you that Christianity does not rightly fit in that category. It's why in the first centuries of Christianity, the Romans called Christians atheist. And they saw Christianity as an anti-religion. It didn't fit in any of their categories for religion that the world had ever seen up until this point. Look at how this father views his younger son's return. Twice he says it. In verse 24 and 32, his return is like a resurrection from the dead. The lost is found. Let me put it like this. You do, not have to, you do not have to repent of your sins in order to become a Christian. Right? Every major religion that the world has ever seen involves some form of repentance from sins. There's nothing really unique about Christianity in that. But to be a Christian, and this is unique, you have to repent of your sins and your righteousness, of even all your plans to get righteous. You have to turn your pockets inside out. The only way to come home is with nothing, is what Jesus is saying. And you see, if that's true, and it is, by the way, then that changes everything. Everything about the way you and I relate to God. I mean, the best way to explain it. Is that it's, I don't know, like a resurrection from the dead. Right? It's that radical. It's that fundamental. It's that total. It changes everything. You know, I say it a lot and I hope at some point in your life you get it. But if this is true, then it does not matter. It doesn't matter who you are or where you have been or what you have done, whether you are very, very good or very, very bad. If this is true, you can come to the Father with nothing in your pockets and you can finally come home. Or perhaps you'll feel it like this. Home will finally come home to you. And you will be resurrected from the dead when you come to Jesus like this. Okay, finally, last point on how to come home or or how to have home come to you, whatever. you have to enter the feast R- real simple. I want to show you in this last point how to enter the feast. And then like G- like I think Jesus is doing here. I want to give you an invitation to this feast for how to enter the feast. The younger son shows us how to enter the feast. There are two things held together in this story that feel very contradictory to one another. Right. This younger son came home in verse 27. He confessed his sin and he said, I'm not worthy to be called your son. But in the very next verse, a huge fuss is made about this son. Right. The father's best robe is put on him. Shoes are put on his feet. The father's ring, his signet ring, declaring him to be a true son of the father is put on his hand. The fattened calf is killed. The whole community is invited and a party with music and laughter and joy breaks out. A huge, lavish, no expenses held back feast is thrown. See, He is unworthy to be called a son. And yet he could not be more fully a son than he is at that moment. It, those things are held together and they feel contradictory. He knows he's unworthy and he goes right into the feast. Shoot, he is at the center of the feast. He is unworthy and yet the whole party is about him. You, you know how you enter the feast? You walk right into what feels like a contradiction to you. You accept grace... For grace. The second you or I. Add any condition to it. Yes it's grace and. The second you do that. It's no longer grace. That's what the whole book of Galatians is about. Go read it. It's possible for you to come home. and Come home and to be both a sinner. And a saint. A sinner and a son. Broken and loved. Unworthy and supremely valued. But having said that. Grace that is free like this, it's also costly, right? Let me finish that John Stott quote I I started a few minutes ago. Stott wrote, The concept of substitution may be said then to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. While the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives which belong to God alone. God accepts penalties which belong to man alone. Look here. The reason the unworthy son is able to accept being called a son is because of what the father did when he ran out to embrace him. You remember what we said in that last point, right? This is is how insidious... The root of sin is in your life and mine. He couldn't get any lower. He couldn't hit a deeper bottom in life than he did in that pigsty. But even that was not enough to change his heart. Right. The root of sin grew again. Right. I'll work my way out. I'll pay my father back. The only thing that could kill the root, the only thing that could kill the root That could resurrect the dead was seeing the humiliating love of his father. And when he saw that. He was able to drop even his plans to do better and enter the feast. His father publicly running through the village. He's publicly humiliating himself in order to bring his son home. And only, I'm telling you, only when you see the humiliating love of God will you be able to empty your pockets. Will you be able to walk right into what feels like a contradiction and enter this feast? Here's the gospel in a nutshell. You are unworthy. I am unworthy. In fact, you are far more messed up than you could ever imagine about yourself. You don't even know the half of it. But only because of the humiliation of God can you be far more accepted, loved, and secure than you could have ever dreamed possible. That's what Jesus came to do. He ran to meet you and he was publicly humiliated. And his embrace with his arms stretched out wide is the embrace of the cross when he substitute when God himself substituted himself in your place. Don't try to work, don't try and work it off. There is nothing to work off. Jesus has accomplished everything for you. This is how you go home. This is how he came home to you. Look, it's so easy to take this, take shots, and I've done it a number of times. Uh, every preacher's done it. It's so easy to take shots and shake, shake our finger at those self-righteous Pharisees, you know. Um, it's so easy to be even self-righteous about their being self-righteous. And in so doing, try to shame the Pharisees and the scribes among us. But look at the invitation that Jesus is giving in this story. We saw, you know, we saw this a couple of weeks ago when we were looking at the beginning part of Luke chapter 15. Jesus was welcoming the tax collectors and the sinners, right? And the Pharisees and the scribes, they were grumbling. What is he doing with those people, Right. And Jesus' response to that, to their grumbling, was to tell a parable. Literally in the Greek, if you back up to the beginning of uh, chapter 15, he told a parable, right? He told a parable, and that parable was a story about lost sheep and a story about a woman who had lost her coin and a story of a man who had lost two sons, right? Also, he could leave this parable unresolved and unfinished. He wasn't shaking his finger. He was inviting the Pharisees and the scribes to come home. Right, It's an invitation because you see the father, he went out to greet his younger son. But he also went out to greet his elder son, right? Your heart is aching for freedom, a place of safety and unconventional love, a place where you can Totally and really let your guard down and find a life flourishing. This is the real freedom that you've been searching for and craving all your life. And Jesus is saying, lay down even your deadly doing. Lay even your righteousness down, your obedience down, your duty down. Lay it all at Jesus' feet. Your sins and your obedience. See the love, see the love of the father. And turn your pockets inside out and enter this feat. You do that and you will come home. It will be like a resurrection from the dead. Okay, two closing thoughts. One, the natural thing to do when hearing this parable is to try and figure out who you are. You know, am I the younger son or am I the elder son? The younger brother or the elder brother? And you might very well see yourself as predominantly one or the other. Right. But it's also very likely that some of you are like me. And if you're like me, you see yourself to be both the younger son and the elder son. At times seeking to play God in open rebellion and at times seeking to play God in our obedience. And I'm just telling you, that should not surprise you. You're not schizophrenic. That shouldn't that shouldn't shake you. Because it's not what we do, but why we do the things we do. This is at the essence of our brokenness. That we are trying to play God one way or the other. And the good news for people like us is that the cure is the same. To see the wonderful, humiliating love of God through Jesus. And come home and enter the feast. Empty your pockets and fall into his outstretched arms. The one who substituted himself for you. Okay, second last thing, I didn't really get a chance to finish this thought as I was walking up here this morning, but I want want to tell you this. I think that the church is in desperate need of developing a theology of partying. You know, in about two weeks, we've created an opportunity for you to practice that at our crawfish boil. And some, I know some of you are suspicious, you think I'm kidding, or you think that I'm just trying to market the crawfish boil. Um, I'm very serious about partying. You know, eight chapters earlier in Luke, in Luke chapter 7, Jesus, was, your Savior, was apparently such a partier that he got a reputation. That they saw him and they said, he's a drunkard and a glutton. You've never seen partying like you've seen Jesus party in the Gospels. He's always partying. He's always at feasts. He's always celebrating. He's always I mean, his first miracle is to show up at a party, at a wedding, at a feast. And at that party, he is saying, this is is what's at the heart of that story. He's saying the wine has run out. I have come to give you joy and to make you party like you've never partied before. And he gives them the wine. That was the old rabbinical, you know, saying the wine is the joy of the wedding. Jesus came to fulfill it. And, you know, I guess what I'm saying is we should spend an awful lot of money on parties, on good parties. And by that, I'm not saying that we shouldn't spend a lot of money in other places. But I'm saying we need, of all people. The church needs to be a people Who are throwing the best parties and inviting all the outsiders and people who think they're insiders to come and feast and enjoy the presence of God in the community of his people. Okay, Dr. Jerem Bars, professor at Covenant Theological Seminary, he wrote this for those of us who teach and preach. Is this celebratory element present in our communication of the gospel? In our churches and ministries, are we demonstrating a celebratory kind of Christianity? Is this the way our church life appears to those outside? One of my colleagues at Covenant Theological Seminary, Professor Anthony Bradley, spoke about this in chapel one day. He said, Covenant Theological Seminary should be be known as the foremost party school in the nation. And he ends it this way. Do unbelievers characterize our churches as party churches? They should. They really should. Because Jesus came to set us free. And that's not fake. That's not talk. He set us free when he substituted himself in the place of man so that we could come home secure and loved and accepted even though we know we're unworthy. That's good news. That'll preach. Invite your friends to the party. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he told these stories. We've been looking at story after story that he told. For months at Grace Community Church. And Father we thank you for this story he told. That truly does expose the root of our brokenness. Whether it show, shows up in sins or in our obedience. That we are always trying to substitute ourselves into your place. And how we thank you for the good news. That you came. That you sent your only son. In order that he would be substituted in our place. And because of that humiliating love. Because of that. We are free. To lay our deadly doing down. To lay it all at Jesus' feet to empty our pockets and to embrace what seems like a contradiction to us that we could at the same time be more broken than we imagined and more loved than we ever dreamed possible. Father, we pray that that good news would find a place in our hearts And that it would be, as we understood it, like a resurrection from the dead. We really are this free. We really are this loved. In Jesus, we really have come home to the Father. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.